Good evening. Russia suspends participation in a grain deal that feeds the world. The hammer attack. Trump blames the victim. The Trump ambassador who went to Kiev, Gordon Sondland, speaks exclusively with the news. Journalist's horror in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and a rare interview with a revolutionary. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Exit polls show former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared to hold a narrow lead early in Israeli elections. Final results could change as votes are tallied. Nevertheless, the polls point to a continued rightward shift among Israeli voters, further dimming hopes for peace with the Palestinians and setting the stage for possible conflict with the Biden administration. On trial for a slew of corruption charges, Netanyahu is seen by supporters as the victim of a witch hunt and vilified by opponents as a crook and a threat to democracy. Arabs make up some 20% of Israel's population have been a key factor in blocking Netanyahu in recent elections, but this time around their vote was split among three different factions. And Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, in his first published speech since losing to progressive former president Lula da Silva on Sunday, promised he would follow the law. He affirmed, as president of the Republican citizen, I will continue to comply with all the commandments of our constitution. There have been fears among Brazilians Bolsonaro, known as the Trump of the tropics, would not accept Trump. Three, two, one. There have been fears among Brazilians Bolsonaro, known as the Trump of the tropics, would not accept defeat, similar to his namesake, Donald Trump in the United States. Bolsonaro said, I was always labeled as anti-democratic, but I always played within the four lines of the Constitution. Lula won the Brazilian runoff election with 50.9% of the vote to Bolsonaro's 49.1%. Russian President Vladimir Putin told Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in a phone conversation today, Kyiv should provide real guarantees that it would not use the Black Sea Corridor created as part of an Istanbul grain deal in its military activities. Russia indefinitely suspended its participation in the deal on Monday following a massive drone attack on its naval base in the Crimean port city of Sevastopol. Russia's United Nations ambassador Vasily Nebenzia made the announcement in New York. The Russian side cannot guarantee the safety of civilian vessels participating in the Black Sea initiative. We do not want other acts of terror being prepared by Kyiv with the support of its Western sponsors. Therefore, we are compelled to suspend the implementation of this initiative on the 29th of October for an unspecified period of time. The Russian military claims some of the naval drones launched by Kyiv allegedly used the Black Sea Grain Carter security zone to close in on their targets. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Ned Price says every day Russia closes the vital sea lifeline, more people in the world go hungry. Uh, We, of course, regret uh, deeply Russia's decision to suspend its participation in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, and we so deeply regret it because this is an initiative that has helped the world. Uh, It has been critical to get aid to the world's neediest people, and Russia and Russia alone is now directly standing in the way of that. Each fraction of a percentage of increase in the, in the price of food pushes someone somewhere around the world over the line into extreme poverty. To be clear, every ounce of food delivered through this grain initiative, and uh, as of uh, yesterday, it had been nearly 10 million metric tons so far, hopefully uh, those shipments will resume, but every single ounce of food helps 
food get to people around the world. State Department spokesperson Ned Price, Moscow had previously blamed Ukraine and United Kingdom Navy specialists for the attack on Sevastopol. London has dismissed the accusation. In national news, David DePape, the now infamous extremist who allegedly attacked and severely injured Paul Pelosi with a hammer last Friday, was arraigned in a San Francisco state courtroom on Tuesday. His attorney entered a plea of not guilty, and DePape was held without bail. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. He forced his way into the home through a rear glass door by breaking that glass. The defendant made his way upstairs to the second floor of the home, locating Mr. Pelosi in his bed sleeping. He woke him up, confronting him about the whereabouts of Speaker Pelosi. It was at some point after that Mr. Pelosi asked to go to the bathroom, which is where he was able to call 911 from his cell phone. Two police officers arrived at the front door two minutes after that 911 call. When that door was opened, the defendant was holding his hammer, which Mr. Pelosi appeared to be attempting to control by holding a portion of that hammer. The defendant then pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently struck him in the top of his head. The police then immediately apprehended the defendant. Meanwhile, federal prosecutors charged DePape on Monday with assault on the immediate family member of a federal official and attempted kidnapping of a federal official. Apparently, DePape has confessed to the attack and telling police he broke into the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi using a hammer, entering through a glass door. But conspiracy theories attempting to cast doubt on the official story are circulating on social media. Former President Donald Trump chimed in on Chris Stiegel's podcast. It's a weird things going on in that household in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, probably you and I are better not talking about it. Cause, <laughs> but the glass, it seems, was broken from the inside to the out. And, you know, that was so it wasn't a break in. It was a breakout. I don't know. You know, you hear the same things I do. Yeah. Then the, uh, the 9-11 tape seems to suggest that uh, they that he knew the identity of the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a. It's a lot of bad stuff. I'm not a fan of Nancy Pelosi, but what's going on there is very sad. DePape faces a maximum sentence of 30 years for the federal assault charge and 20 years maximum for the attempted kidnapping charge. The state charges filed by the DA's office could add up to 13 years to life. In more news of the former president and his cronies, the New York trial of Trump ally Tom Barrack may soon go to a jury. U.S. District Judge Brian Cogan indicated in court Monday he might thin things out, but ultimately Cogan didn't dismiss any counts. The jury is expected to begin deliberations on Wednesday. Barrack was chair of Trump's inaugural committee and a close advisor. He's been charged with failing to register as a foreign agent for the United Arab Emirates. Barrack is a close associate of Republican operative Paul Manafort, who was pardoned by Trump after conviction on numerous charges, including tax and bank fraud. He's mentioned in the Mueller report as working with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to have eastern Ukraine become a vassal state of Russia. Another Trump ally, at least until he wasn't, is the former ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. He angered Trump by willingly testifying during the former president's first impeachment. His memoir was just released. is called The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Sondland, as U.S. ambassador, was involved in negotiations with the then newly elected president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, to get Ukraine a U.S. aid package. 
The House of Representatives investigation claimed Trump withheld the money to pressure Zelensky to dig up dirt on now-President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. In an exclusive interview, Ambassador Sondland tells this reporter Trump was more detached and distracted than actively involved in Ukraine. Sondland adds the real villain in the story may be former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who had his own contacts in Ukraine. I believe he would respect him, and that's why I tried so hard at the beginning just to get the two of them together without any preconditions. Because, you know, I got to know Trump well enough during the process to know what kind of people appeal to him on a purely visceral and personal level. And I thought, and so did Secretary Perry and Ambassador Volker, the three of us, after spending quite a bit of time with Zelensky, given the fact that he was just inaugurated and had other things to do, we spent the better part of a day with him, and then I gave him a, an event shortly thereafter in Brussels and spent an entire day and an evening with him. We were pretty impressed that this is the kind of guy that Trump would like. And when Trump likes someone, then all of a sudden good things start to happen. But there was no quid pro quo to come up with evidence like Hunter Biden. Let's be very clear as to what I testified to. I'm not going to, uh, on this interview revise my testimony because nothing has changed Mm -hmm. when we asked president trump we the the delegation that went to the inauguration when we asked president trump to meet with zelensky we said we thought he would like zelensky just get him in here and have a meeting he was not happy he was distracted with unrelated stuff said i don't really want to deal with this have rudy giuliani work on this And we all said, well, why Rudy Giuliani? He's not part of the administration. He's your lawyer. He said, well, just have him deal with it. So, you know, reluctantly, (laughs) because that was the only way we were going to get any attention at at that moment on the Ukraine issue, we went to Giuliani. And Giuliani's first ask, which was the only ask that I was directly aware of at the time, not now with 2020 hindsight, obviously, was a very simple ask. And we don't know, again, did it come from Giuliani or did it come from Trump? We have no idea. But Giuliani's ask, allegedly on behalf of Trump, was there are investigations into corruption that were stopped prior to Zelensky taking office. Zelensky campaigned as part of his campaign. He said, I'm going to restart all these corruption investigations because we want to get to the bottom of them. And again, they were generic corruption investigations. They weren't about any particular company or person or what have you. And the ask from Giuliani was restart those corruption investigations, make an announcement that you're going to do it publicly in some venue, whether it's an interview or a TV thing or whatever. And then the president will invite President Zelensky to have a meeting in the Oval Office. That was it. Nothing more. Mm -hmm. And that then blew into a lot more asks and ultimately the military aid being suspended briefly. So how that all unfurled, that was Mm. not done with my, certainly not my acknowledgement consent, but not even my knowledge. Right. Well, that leads to just a couple of quick questions, which is, well, do you think that President Trump and the United States were well served by Giuliani? No. Why not? Because I think that if you want to bring someone like Rudy Giuliani into a process like that, then he needs to go through the typical vetting and the typical confirmation process that all of us had to go through 
to bring someone like a Rudy Giuliani, who was not in government at the time, into a very delicate foreign policy process where no one really knew what his role was other than he was a lawyer for the president, I think really complicates things immensely and was not a good uh, was not a good decision. I was there in the room when he punted the ball to Giuliani, and I know it was based on the fact that his mind was elsewhere, he didn't want to focus, he didn't want to deal, and then all of a sudden this thing began to spiral out of control now that Giuliani had the ball. You were saying good things about the president, but from what you just said, it doesn't seem like he's a man who should be president of anything, much less the United States, if he's not paying attention. My feeling about Donald Trump until January 6th, with Donald Trump, with all the picadillos that emerged since the day he declared his candidacy going down the escalator, there were some very positive things and some very negative things. But on balance, as a package, I was willing to accept the package. Once January 6th occurred, where he didn't do two important things, that was my red line in terms of supporting him. Right. Did you see that coming? I didn't see it coming. I thought it was just a lot of bluster. I thought at the end of the day, President Trump would attend President Biden's inauguration. He'd probably give some kind of a speech afterwards, you know, making sure the attention stayed on him and not on the new president, which would be par for the course. But I did not think that he would um, countenance what happened at the Capitol. And I certainly did not think that he would resist turning the keys over because I believe as much as it pains me to say it, because I'm not supportive of President Biden or his policies, uh, President Biden legitimately won the election. There's no question about it. I want to leave you with this. Good guys, good people on both sides. Weren't you a bit disgusted when when Trump said that? Are you talking about the riots? Yeah, back in Charlottesville when he, uh, when that woman Heather Heyer was killed by the uh, neo-Nazi who ran her over, and the people yeah, were marching through. Look, my parents, my parents are Holocaust survivors. What else do I have to say? How come? How could you even walk in the same room with somebody who made an equivalent equivalence between anti-Nazi protesters, whether they be uh, uh, too transgressive or too violent, even themselves? I mean, you know. Could you have been too violent against Hitler? Well, whenever I had the opportunity, trust me, I vehemently disagreed with him on a lot of things, and I made my voice known. I wasn't afraid to tell him. You know, he may not agree with me, but I wasn't afraid to tell him. But afraid to walk in a room, I mean, come on, we're in rooms with people that we disagree with all the time. So are you. (laughs) Probably both of us together right now. Former ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. Sondland's memoir was just released. is called The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. In October 2019, the Trump administration tried to block Sondland from testifying in the impeachment inquiry. Sondland eventually testified on October 17, 2019. And former United States Secretary of State under Trump and ex-head of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, was formally served with a lawsuit on Tuesday. The suit, filed by the Defense Committee for WikiLeaks founder and jail journalist Julian Assange, charges Pompeo provided oversight for an alleged criminal conspiracy to violate the right to privacy of Assange's attorneys. The suit says a company linked to the CIA provided the U.S. government information on Assange's visitors at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where Assange had sought refuge for a number of years. Assange is currently being held in Belmarsh Prison in the U.K., pending an appeal against his extradition to the U.S., where he faces decades in prison. 
and Julian Assange, while maybe the most notable imprisoned journalist, is far from the only reporter who's run afoul of their government. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the country's most famous journalist, Steve Wemby, who writes for the New York Times, was seized by government agents in Kinshasa, where he was seen being bundled into a white jeep with no license plates. According to the organization Reporters Without Frontiers, there have been 20 abductions of reporters in the country this year. One of those abducted who was released is Nicholas Niarcos, a freelance reporter. He's author of Why Does the Democratic Republic of the Congo Keep Arresting Journalists, published in The Nation. He spoke today with the news. The first journalist that I mentioned, Steve Wemby, appears to have been the most recent person to have been arrested. Steve, who I've been in touch with and so on, is a contributor to the New York Times. He is more of a sort of traditional print journalist, freelancer. He will work also for other different Congolese Mm -hmm. channels and websites and so on. And he has a very active Twitter profile as well. He has been writing for The Times since 2017, and he has also worked as a, um, what people call a fixer or a guide or a translator for many foreign reporters who come to the country. The work of these people is invaluable to foreign journalists as well when they are writing stories for American, French, English, whatever audiences. There have been various different journalists, sort of local journalists, who have been arrested. There were some radio journalists who were tortured by the security service. There's a whole list of people who have been sort of aggregated by uh, Reporters Sans Frontières, which is a charity that focuses on, on, on this stuff. And then you can add to this the category of basically kind of a clampdown on free speech. So people who are not really journalists, but people who are exercising their right, which is constitutional right in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to free speech. They've really seen themselves cracked down on and lots of people commenting on these WhatsApp groups and so on will get a knock on the door from secret police. We obviously don't really have a good number on these kind of people and commentators and so on who've been arrested because they don't have journalist associations behind them saying oh, what's happened to this journalist that we know and so on. The final set of journalists who were arrested was actually myself and, and my own fixer, guide, translator, friend as well. While we were at reporting in Katanga over the summer. I didn't know that you had been arrested as well. What was that experience and what do you think prompted that your arrest? I think there was a lot of confusion about what we were doing. Um, it was very clear that they didn't understand what the role of a journalist was. We were doing interviews around um, Katangan separatism and connections to mining. We were trying to meet boss of the separatists called Jedion Kyungu. We had heard that he had some involvement in mines. Since the the arrest, actually, I found out more that makes me more convinced that he does actually have some involvement in mines and minerals that go into one's cell phone or electric vehicle. But obviously, the authorities felt very uncomfortable about this. While we were accredited by the Ministry of Media and Communications, secret police decided to arrest us. We were held for six days. Really have to thank the U.S. Embassy for pulling for us to get out, both myself and my local Congolese journalist that I was working with, Jeff Kazadi. Other journalists have seen various sort of slightly aggressive techniques from the security service recently. Our story was quite unique. When they're arrested, when they're a journalist and thrown in some gaol somewhere, what happens? We were treated respectfully, but quite sternly. You know, I was locked in a white room, basically, and we were transferred 
to Kinshasa, the capital. Lots of interrogations, lots of sort of, you know, being woken up very early and taken to interrogation rooms and so on. Apart from a sort of lack of food and a lack of outside exercise and so on, I wouldn't say that they were particularly, for me, they weren't great conditions, obviously. Locked in a room by myself. My journalist colleague, Jeff, was in a slightly more crowded cell, which I think he thought was very dirty. He wasn't tortured. Some of the other journalists, obviously, that I've spoken to and so on have, uh, have suffered much more. Nicholas Niarcos, a freelance reporter. He's author of Why Does the Democratic Republic of the Congo Keep Arresting Journalists, published in The Nation. The Congo is one of the richest countries in the world, potentially, with natural resources that are coveted for technological development all over the world. And finally, the leader of one of the few political parties in the United States to openly call itself communist is Bob Avakian, the founder of the formerly Maoist Revolutionary Communist Party. And the 70-something former student radical was interviewed for a three-part program on the Revolution Nothing Less show to be broadcast on YouTube November 3rd, 10th, and 17th. Here's an excerpt. You got all these people that pretend that they're progressive and whatever, and they're all going right along with U.S. imperialism and this, you know, and under the banner that Biden and all these people are putting out about this is a world, you know, not this is a contest in the United States and throughout the world between democracy and autocracy. Trump is an autocrat. Putin is an autocrat. Xi Jinping is an autocrat. Of course, they don't talk about their own autocrats, you know, like <laughs> the heads of the government, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, you can go down the list, you know, that are all part of their alliance. You know, those are all autocratic governments, but there are, are autocratic governments. One of the Vikings interviewers is Andy Z. He joins the news from Los Angeles. What Bob Evakins developed and what he's fighting for, fighting against all manner of narrowness and proceeding from people's personal experience and not from the larger thing, this wokeness that's actually really eating alive the sections of progressive movements now with a cancel culture rather than actually analyzing what's the objective problem. The breakthrough that Bob Evakin has made in the science of communism the scientific basis of which was established by Karl Marx and carried forward in previous revolutions, is to actually root out all those aspects that were not scientific, enable people to see for themselves. Now, in terms of the new society, why should they trust this? What they should do is they should look at the Constitution for a new socialist republic in North America that Avakian wrote. It's different than any other constitution that's ever been written, including by the previous socialist states. It would be a republic... And that, in fact, while it wouldn't be made easy to overturn a revolution just by having a vote, who's ever most popular is able to do it, there is actually provision in that if the masses of people over a process of two years decided to vote out the, the, the revolution, they could, which would be a horrible thing to happen after people will have fought and died to make a revolution. Now, here's the thing. Why shouldn't somebody else? Well, who else has written a constitution for a new socialist republic? Who else is actually talking right now about an actual revolution? But I had a guy from PLP who was my professor in college, uh, one of the leaders of the Progressive Labor Party. He saw me reading On Contradiction by Mao, a pamphlet, and he looked at it and he says, what are you reading that crap for? Hocus Pocus. They're not a radical organization, or let alone revolutionary. They do anti-racist work in the schools, fine, but this has nothing to do with revolution. And so, of course, he doesn't think it's possible, but we think it is possible, and we can make the case that it's possible, because you have millions of people in this country who care about those things that I mentioned earlier. We call them the five stops. We need to stop the oppression of black people, of immigrants, of women, LBGTQ people. 
to get a different economic and political system so we can go to work on trying to save this planet. And we need to stop these inter-imperialist wars, which are one of which is actually brewing now and could be catastrophic if it goes to it. But all these contradictions, millions of people care about it, but they don't see any way out of it. And what they're hearing from this desiccated left, which means this dried up left that has no, and you gave a good example, has no belief that a revolution could be possible and even is necessary, except in somewhere down in their principles. They may say someday in a hundred years, maybe things will get saved by the by the God of whatever, the God of the masses, maybe. What do you guys see that the rest of everybody doesn't see? So if you want to know what we see, people should go to Revolution Books in New York City at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. The screening will begin at 8 o'clock of the show with Bob Avakian, okay? It's the first interview in, in, in some time. None like this ever existed before. There's a conversation he did at Riverside with uh, Cornell West. This isn't going to be critical. It's also going to be, there'll be public showings in Berkeley and Chicago and here in Los Angeles. Or go to our sh- YouTube channel, YouTube, the Revcoms, and it will be premiering there at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. New York time. What do we see? We see a system that is destroying the planet and destroying humanity. We see people who actually do care if we could get out there and struggle if people would actually have an open mind and take a look at what's been developed on the science of revolution. It's been 40, almost 45 years since there's been a socialist country in the world, a genuine socialist country. And he is co-host of the Revolution Nothing Less show. The interview with Bob Avakian will be broadcast on YouTube November 3rd, 10th, and 17th. And that's the news for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. The news was produced and anchored by this reporter. It can be heard at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.